This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 79. Truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. This episode, we are going to cover the finale of the Imperious Lex story arc in Superman number 36, and we're going to keep swimming through the somewhat glorious nonsense that is Dark Knight's Metal with issue five of that miniseries, and time permitting, I also have a little bit of bonus content I want to tack on to the end, but I don't want to say what it is just in case I don't have the opportunity to get to it. But the plan is to give you guys a little bit of bonus something at the end of the episode. Now, before I get started, before I move on to the Fortress of Solitude, I want to say that as I am recording this episode, I am running on very a little sleep. I don't know what's been going on with me lately, but I have not been sleeping super well. I'm not particularly bothered by anything. Nothing is keeping me awake at night. I just can't seem to get my brain to just stop functioning on all the normal thought cylinders that I go through through the day. Um, so I might be a little salty on this episode. I'm going to try not to be. I may have a little bit of more snark than I often uh, interpose into these episodes, but I'm going to do my best to get through it. So with that being said, let's have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, as I have mentioned in the past, one of my earliest exposures to superheroes in general was the Challenge of the Super Friends cartoon that was still like coming out in its original format on ABC on Saturday mornings in 1978 when I was four years old. And for a long time, Super Friends was my favorite show. I would say probably until I was about 10, Super Friends was my favorite. And by then I discovered Giant Robots and Voltron and Robotech and all those other cool things that got imported from Japan. And Super Friends does not really hold up well by by today's standards. I imagine if I sat my kid down to watch it when she was little, she might have enjoyed it. But um, I don't remember if I saw the Super Friends first or if I saw the 1960 Spider-Man cartoon first, but I definitely liked Super Friends the best. And the reason I like that season of Super Friends best, not just because it's the one that introduced me to the super to superheroes in general, to to you know, like, I think I saw Super Friends before I saw the first Christopher Reeve movie in the theaters when I was four years old. So it probably is what introduced me to Superman. It's probably what introduced me to Wonder Woman, although I know the Linda Carter series have been going on for a little bit of that time. 
Batman, Robin, all that. Um, the reason I like it best is because that's the season that also focuses on the Legion of Doom. And I have always loved the idea of the supervillain team because when the whole Justice League gets together and fights one person, it can be interesting, especially when their fighting is really powerful. Um, but when you have like a team dynamic versus another team dynamic, it's always really fun. And I've always had a soft spot for the Legion of Doom in my heart. Um, I've told you guys the story before, I think, about how in the early 2000s, when Cartoon Network was doing Toonami on Saturday nights, and that's when they would play Justice League Unlimited. And they would play these little snippets where they would take old Hanna-Barbera cartoons and they would do new, new voiceovers. And one of them was where it's a, a meeting of the Legion of Doom and it's just everyone having like a workplace argument with Lex Luthor. And, uh, you know, they're all saying what they want and Brainiac stands up. And of course, Brainiac in the 70s wore those like little trunks and, you know, they're just trunks, no leggings. Like, I just want pants. And then Solomon Grundy stands up and goes, Solomon Grundy want pants too. And my friend Sam and I, we used to laugh endlessly about that. In fact, we would just call each other up and shout, Solomon Grundy want pants too, and then hang up. Uh, so I've always liked the, I've always liked the Legion of Doom. Um, I've talked about Justice Doom War and the Scott Snyder and James Tynion run of Justice League, which I the first half of which I talked about recently on um, the most recent as I'm recording this episode of Digging for Kryptonite with Anthony Desiato, um, where they they bring back the Legion of Doom for that, and. Uh, one thing that I always find fascinating about supervillain teams is how they kind of, they're self-defeating. And this is something I noticed as I was getting older and reading more and more comics and more and more, you know, I'd read more and more, and more supervillain teams and supervillain team-ups. They always turn on each other because they always have their own agenda, right? You know, you saw it in the Thunderbolts in the late 90s. You saw it in the earlier iterations of Masters of Evil in the 70s and earlier 80s. You saw it in the Sinister Six. I'm throwing out a lot of, of uh, uh, Marvel references. I guess you could say with the Fearsome Five with DC in the early 80s. And it's always egos getting in the way, right? It's, it's, it's competing agendas. And that's kind of what I wanna, where I want to go with this week's Fortress of Solitude segment. And of course, the supervillain team in real life that I'm referring to is, of course, Republicans in Congress. And a lot of news organizations for a long time after the Democrats retook the House in uh, 2018 and then took the Senate in 2020, is that the Democrats were self-defeating because they were all over the place in terms of ideology. You had the moderates on one end of the Democrat spectrum, the ones that were like leaned very, very light blue to purple. And then you had ones all the way on the other end um, with, the, with the far left, left progressives like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and the rest of that squad. And then you had just the, the general liberals in the middle. Right. And so it's like, well, there's too many agendas 
among the Democrats. They can't ever get along. And then they painted this narrative that Republicans were a monolith. They all want the same thing. They all have the same goal and they're willing to put aside their minor differences to accomplish that goal. And usually that goal was something like, oh, finding a way to overturn Roe versus Wade or something like that, right? But then the problem was, is they eventually got what they wanted. Roe v. Wade got overturned by the Supreme Court. And of course, Congress, it would be marginal to say that they accomplished that agenda. On Honestly, it's it's more of a, um, because Trump got an office and he appointed these three particular justices, but of course the Democrats, I mean, the Republicans in the Senate helped confirm them back when, back when the Democrats or the Republicans still controlled the Senate. Um, but they got their way. They, they got, they, they, they all got their goal. This big boogeyman of, uh, women's, uh, women's bodily autonomy was finally overcome. And then they all had their own agenda. And they all had these own things that they wanted. And some of them wanted to move past Donald Trump and be more like, like 1980s Reagan Republicans or even uh, like late 1990s um, uh, Republicans under the Clinton administration when they all kind of you know, gathered together to try to impeach uh, Clinton. Not that I'm saying he didn't have it coming. Clinton was kind of a scumbag. But they are they are definitely not a monolith uh, because you have those on one side of the spectrum. And then you have the others who are the absolute uh, MAGA extremists. You have Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and, and all those, uh, Paul Gosar and all those other, all those other, um, Boy, I almost dropped a swear bomb on this one. I don't drop swear bombs on on this show. I did say the S word one time. But, um, and then you've got everybody else in between. And we see that a lot in the last couple of weeks. Or we have seen that in a lot in the last couple of weeks. But most notably, this, this push in the House to try to impeach President Biden. And they've admitted they don't have any evidence to impeach him on, that they want to start an impeachment so that they can therefore discover things to try to impeach him for, um, which doesn't make sense. Basically, they're trying to impeach him out of revenge for Trump getting impeached twice. Um, and you have this, also have this other group who wants to remove Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the House for... Um, even though he is, he is really, he's definitely not a moderate Republican. He's definitely leaning to the extremist side, but he's not as extreme as the others. And because he's very reluctantly reaching a hand across the aisle to the Democrats to get help to get the national budget passed, they want to impeach him. And today we saw a lot of that completely fall apart as, the, as there was some budget reconciliation and a lot of that did have to do with McCarthy getting help from the Democrats and making a lot of concessions and and taking out the thing, 90% of the things that the extremists wanted. And their, their push to try to remove him from the speakership fell apart because Matt Gates, who's been leading that push, 
um, realized he didn't have the support. And at the same time, he realizes there's enough Democrats who are willing to vote to have Matt Gates removed if he tries to uh, to get McCarthy removed uh, from the speakership. And so, uh, and the different you know, so the different factions of the Republican Party in Congress are tearing themselves apart. You see it with the squad, the constant squabbling between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and um, people turning on, um, I'm sorry, I, 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 like I said, I'm tired and I'm blanking on the name of the guy who committed all the fraud on his, um, on his electoral stuff, who got, the guy who got elected at New York, uh, New York State, um, and so forth and so on. And they are eating themselves apart. And you can also see it in the Republican debates. There is no civility there. There is not an issue of, I disagree with you, but if by some miracle you got the Republican um, National Committee nomination for the Republican candidate, I would support you. They all don't support each other at all. And meanwhile, there is a lot of unity among the Democrats. And so this is just one of those things where I just want to share this with you. For those of you who may not be as politically plugged in, I want to say if you are voting, as you should, you are doing a good job. And um, not that we shouldn't continue to vote, not that we shouldn't continue to be educated on the issues and to vote with some intelligence. But at the same time, it is also kind of fun to sit back and watch the snake eat its own tail and to watch the Legion of Doom eventually sink their ship into Slaughter Swamp. And that's all I have to say about this topic for now. So with nowhere else to go because I'm tired, let's go talk about some Superman comics. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. One more thing before we go into the comics. As I was recording, the segment that you guys just listened to, Mark freaking Wade just followed me on Blue Sky. You guys, I'm real happy. Okay, let's go talk about comic books. Okay, here we go. Sorry, my head's still spinning a little bit on this one. Uh, so it's like my wedding. Birth my child, followed by Mark Wade. Okay, the three, the three highlights of my life so far. Alrighty, uh, here we go. Let's get serious. We are going to talk about Superman number thirty-six. This is part three and the finale of Imperious Lex. Actually, this is one, two, part four. Excuse me, of Imperious Lex, and it is cover dated February. 6, 2017. We're almost on to 2018 in a second book. That's very exciting. Um, this issue is penciled by Doug Mankey. I can tell you that much. Give me a second to find the rest of the credits. It is written by Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason. Uh, again, Mankey does the pencils. Uh, Jaime Mendoza and Mankey himself do the inks. Will Quintana does the letters and Rob no, Will Quintana does the colors, and Rob Lee does the letters. Will Quintana's colors go really well 
with Mankey's pencils, by the way. Uh, Gleason and Dean White did the main cover, and John Boy Myers, who I think we've seen before, but I, I remember the name. I don't remember where, but we've seen John Boy Myers somewhere before does the variant. And they're both really, really cool covers. The main one is of Superman sitting on the throne of Darkseid with Apocalypse itself burning with you know the the fire pits in the sky behind him and superman's eyes are lit up red with heat vision and his face is kind of tinged red from the light of it and there's two skulls on the ground in front of his throne and that's a really cool cover the second one is it doesn't have anything to do with anything but it's just superman and you're only seeing him really from the waist up and from his left shoulder on you know, for the rest of his body. And his cape is blowing in the wind and his eyes are lit up with heat vision and there's kind of a lens flare around his right eye. And um, like there's no lines on the outside of his arms and his torso. It's the only thing that, that defines it is the shading and it kind of blends into this solid blue in the background. And... It's just a really cool cover. I just enjoy looking at it. I'm torn as to which cover, honestly, to use as the thumbnail for this episode. Of course, you guys will have, I will have figured it out by the time you guys listen to this, and you'll have figured it out with your eyeballs. But I'm honestly leaning toward this one. So let's do a little recap to catch up to where we've been in this series for the past few weeks. Um, way back in the New 52, which took place before this show began its coverage, um, Darkseid, I think, died. <laughs> and Lex briefly took the throne of Apocalypse. And there's a really cool McFarlane action figure that I own with Lex in a kind of Darkseid-esque looking armor. Um, but he gave up the throne for reasons, returned to Earth, and Apocalypse has fallen into civil war with Granny Goodness and Talabak and the other lieutenants vying for violent leadership of the planet. So a group of neutral warriors, I guess, who don't aren't on the side of any of the lieutenants, um, go to Earth and kidnap Lex and say, well, you're going to come with us back to Apocalypse to be our ruler, whether you like it or not. And Lex unleashes a failsafe that captures not only Superman, but also accidentally Lois and John as well, and takes them to Apocalypse so Superman can save Lex. And this is after Lex tried to reach Superman by communicator several times. Um, and Superman ignored it because he's like, yeah, Lex just wants to show me the new polish that he put on his armor. It, it can wait. I've got family time right now. Superman, Lois, and John all get separated. Um, John ends up on the run from some warhound soldiers. Those are the big giant dogs um, that uh, the soldiers ride into battle. He ends up befriending the dogs because the riders were going to kill them and eat them. And the dogs decide that the dogs who are more intelligent than your average dog are going to help John save his parents. Lois has been kind of forcibly inducted into the female Furies. It's either join us or be a slave, basically. So she joins the female Furies. 
and um, Superman and Lex end up getting captured by Kalibak, who is was preparing to lower them into a fire pit to see how hot the fire pit still is after he blasts it with this big cannon. Um, Lois shows up, the Furies show up, a huge fight breaks out. Um, Calabac ends up turning the cannon on full blast and ends up overloading all the fire pit, all the fire pits on a planet, on Apocalypse. So the planet has gone dark. And just then, that's when John arrives with all his good giant doggos, like, like Gandalf riding over the crest with the Rohirrim at the Battle of Helm's Deep. And that is where we pick up this issue. So we open on a splash page of the planet itself, completely dark, and we get these tiny little panels that are showing just like microcosm snip, snippets of this fight. And then when you flip the next page in the digital copy, I assume it was a two-page spread in the physical, you get this massive fight scene. And there is Calback with like holding Lois by the back of the head with one giant hand and he's holding his mace in the other and he's squaring off with John who is wearing some uh, like the chest piece of a piece of apocalyptic armor riding this armored warhound holding up a glaive in one hand which looks really cool. Uh, Superman is being swarmed by the female Furies. Uh, Mad Harriet has one arm around his neck and she's clinging to his back with one clawed hand across his chest. And Lashina has grabbed a hold of Superman's left arm and is pulling back her whip to strike. And uh, Stompa is facing off with a parademon. And Granny is also fighting a parademon. And it is, it's a really, really good panel. And this just reminds me of why I love um, Doug Mankey's artwork so much. So Superman, he breaks free of the Furies and punches Calabac to get Lois free. Lois and Superman seem to give John kind of conflicting orders. Lois is saying, John, line up on your father. And Clark is saying, form a perimeter with the dogs around your mother. So basically Lois is saying is, John, get to your dad for protection. And Superman is saying, John, protect your mom. Uh, but John says, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. He's just kind of doing his own thing. Um, Granny does a power bomb on Calabac from above and flips him around in a full suplex. She's grabbing his ear, punching him in the face. They're squaring off. It's pretty amazing. Superman looks over and Lex looks like he's about to be beheaded by... A parademon, but then uh, John's war dog pups kind of swarm on Lex, who is unconscious, and keep him safe from the parademons. Um, the the Furies, um, Her Mad Harriet, Lashina, and Stampa, they gang up on Lois, and Lashina says, "Look, the weak women, the weak woman, flies to the side of her man." And Matt Harriet says, I wouldn't be surprised to learn you serve drink at home and play nursemaid to his children. You brought shame to our sisters. You belittle the progress of our sex in caring for these men. Granny meant more, meant for you to be more. You never had the strength of a fury. 
So Lois takes the haft of this spear or glaive that she's got, and she hits Harriet across the face with it. She kicks Stompa in the throat, and she elbows um, Lashina in the solar plexus, and then she just knocks out another random fury and says, sorry you feel that way, sister, but my love is not weakness, and caring for others never makes us small. And you, of all people, do not get to lecture me on who I am. And that's pretty rad. It turns out it is a glaive. And there's this pretty great panel of uh, Superman holding an unconscious or dismantled parademon, because it's never really clear exactly what parademons are in the DC Universe. I miss the superpowers action figure slash super friends superpowers cartoon version where they are orange skinned kind of bat looking actual demons um i've seen versions where they are just um people on apocalypse who have kind of risen up through the ranks of dark side servitude and they're just people in like green armor some of these seem to be kind of the jim lee version where they're cyborgs or like robots empowered with some organic components because it looks like he's got one one's arm ripped off but it's got circuitry sticking out of the stump and it's sparking and and um and he's smiling at lois and she's smiling at him and she's holding her glaive and he's saying have i told you how glad i am to see you hon and she said tell me again babe well I'll, meanwhile in the background behind the two of them Granny and Calabac are ready to smash each other into paste. So, um, Calabac, he breaks away from Granny at one point, and he is charging toward Lex, who is being guarded by John on, it looks like, a Warhound pup. And uh, Calabac is shouting, Slaves of Apocalypse, tremble as I lay waste to all who dare deny me my birthright. It should be noticed that um, Michael Dorn, who, of course, is most well-known for playing Worf on Star Trek, did not only the voice of Steel on Superman the Animated Series, but also did the voice of Calabac. That's not really how I hear Calabac in my head. I hear him as more this, like, snarling brute. But, you know, good job on Michael Dorn. Uh, Worf was always my favorite Star Trek Next Generation character, by the way. My dad went and told me, you only like Worf because he's kind of intense. I was like, well, I was kind of an intense kid when that show was out, or intense teenager. Um, Calabat goes on, cower as I restore my father's order, and weep as I destroy the false prophet's god. And at this point, the Apocalyptans who kidnapped Lex, he is, they have figured out he is not the one destined to, to lead them. They have a prophecy of someone who comes from a major metropolis who shrouds himself in hope and was raised by farmers and came from another planet. So it's obviously Superman who their their prophecy is, is leaning toward. And Lex is like, hey, that's not me, because Lex doesn't want that responsibility. He kind of points it out to them that it's Superman at first, those Apocalyptans wanted to kill Lex for, quote-unquote, misleading them, although they're the ones who jumped to the conclusion 
But again, Lex is unconscious, and uh, Calabac just wants to smash him or throw him in a pit or something. There's a panel where Calabac, who is really, really big, by the way, I like it when Calabac is drawn this big. He's like 10 feet tall, and he looks like an ogre. And that's really how Calabac should look. He's holding Lex upside down by one leg, and it looks like he's holding a giant piece of machinery with the other. So it looks like he's he tosses Lex down into one of the extinguished fire pits. I don't know what he's doing with this piece of machinery. Maybe he's going to throw the machinery in after Lex to crush him or something. I don't know. Like I said last episode, um, Calabac's a dumbass. So there, he doesn't really put a whole lot of thought into his actions. He's just snarl and break and destroy and crush. He reminds me a lot of the character uh, Raban the Cruel. Uh, Raban, I'm sorry, the Beast Raban. Calabac the Cruel is Calabac's full name. Um, Calabac reminds me a lot of the Beast Raban from Dune. And um, Kirby created the Fourth World shortly after Dune was published and became very, very popular. So I honestly really wonder how much of the fourth world was inspired by Dune, how much of the new gods was inspired, uh, or the, the gods of New Genesis were inspired by House Atreides, and how much of the gods of Apocalypse were inspired by House Harkonnen. I really like Dune, by the way. Or I like the 1980-something David Lynch movie a lot. I think the movie with Timothy Chalamet is fine. It's a really good movie. Um, I've never finished the book. I really need to one day, but I have a weird soft spot in my heart for that terrible uh, David Lynch movie with Kyle MacLachlan. Um, but after Lex tosses, I'm sorry, after Calabax tosses Lex into the pit, like this grappling line comes from out of nowhere and snags Lex, pulls him up into the air, and then like a cannon blast knocks the ground from beneath Calabac's feet, and he falls down into the pit, Balrog-style. No! He screams as he falls down into the pit. And we see where the Apocalyptan faction that kidnapped Lex to begin with have confiscated some airship with some big old cannons on it, and they are the ones who snagged Lex with the grapple line. It is interesting to note that this group of Apocalyptans has their own parademons, um, and they looks they look kind of different than the ones who are um, working for Calabac. They are more they are more the traditional parademons who are guys in green armor, but they do have these big like bat wings. So again, really, you know, really cool. I love the artwork on this. I think parademons are fascinating. Um, I love the fourth world in general. And as I said last episode, if you have never read Kirby's um, New Gods series. If you don't have the the quite the the constitution to get through it, because Kirby can be dense, Kirby can be a little confusing at times. His art isn't for everyone, even though I think it's great. I highly recommend um, uh, following Jason Venable on Twitter. His account at SnickedCast. He's been doing a uh, kind of like I do with this with the Superman um, Twitter thread synopses. He's been doing that with Kirby's Fourth World with 
with new gods, with forever people, with Mr. Miracle, the whole thing. I highly recommend you check it out. It's very, very entertaining, and it's the highlight of my Twitter experience. Um, so the this faction of Apocalyptans is led by a blind prophet. And as Lex is hanging there unconscious, more or less comatose, um, the... Um, you know, they're saying, you know, Calabac has fallen into the pit. And the prophet says, then the pit will be his fate. While judgment for Lex Luthor is yours, Superman, and yours alone. And Superman says, good. Releases a string of heat vision, which snaps the line that's holding Lex aloft. And Lex, uh, Superman flies down and uh, grabs uh, Lex before he can fall into the pit. Now, at this point, the... The parademons who are working for the prophet, they rush in and pretty much subdue everybody. You, you get the impression this is a more powerful group of parademons. They, they subdue Granny's forces. They subdue the female furies. They subdue the other group of parademons. And, um, they're saying, uh, and they're saying, you will not escape Lord Superman's judgment, Granny. And Granny's going, just kill me now and get it over with. And Superman says, she lives too. And the prophet says, is that wise? And Superman says, probably not. Um, and the prophet says, are we to understand these to be your first decrees by the authority of the throne of Apocalypse? And Superman says, no, it's just the right thing to do, which is always the Superman. That's always what the Superman answer should be. Um, back in the day, I used to really enjoy Wizard Magazine. And I feel a little ashamed of that now because I recognize how much tampering Wizard Magazine did with the speculator market and how much it boosted up things like uh, like early image comics and the launch of X-Force and, you know, got people to go out and buy like 20 copies of Wildcats number one because they thought it would put their kids through college one day. But there were times where I didn't have enough money to get all the comics I wanted to keep up with so I would get Wizard and it would kind of you know, at least give you an overview of what was going on with comics in general and they would have these pithy little argument these pithy little articles and one was the four most iconic superheroes in Marvel and DC their motivations ranked and Spider-Man was number one because of the whole power and responsibility thing um Batman was number two um, because his was as compelling, but the vengeance aspect of it made it less iconic, I guess. Wolverine was at the bottom because he, there's Wolverine at the time didn't really have a lot of motivation. He was just out there doing his thing. And Superman was ranked to be the, you know, next to the bottom because his motivation is just go out and do the right thing. And that was considered not compelling. And I take, you know, significant umbrage with that because doing the right thing should be everybody's motivation. You shouldn't have, your uncle shouldn't have to dial it in a hail of gunfire if you do the right thing. Your, your mom and dad shouldn't have to get killed in an alley for you to do the right thing. You should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And that's why I love Superman. Um, but... Ardora, the prophet's like second in command, says, uh, the prophecy states that you are the embodiment of justice. 
They are far from innocent. Luther has brought shame to your name. And Superman says, mercy is for those who are in need of it. And that reminds me of something we will eventually get to in the future state books. Um, I mentioned future state Imperius Lex last episode. I'm not going to go into what the plot of it is, but there is a scene where Superman is planning to go back and hope a planet full of people who tried to kill him and Hawkman, um, one of my two conservative superheroes that I can think of, says, you know, those people don't deserve your mercy. And Superman says, no one deserves mercy. That's why it's mercy. And that's really, really powerful to it. But this is very reminiscent of that, uh, which we will again get to eventually. And uh, one of the parademons says, what weak drivel is this? which reminds me of the um, uh, the Fortress of Solitude uh, topic that I covered a few episodes ago about how you know, pastors around the country, especially in evangelical churches, are being confronted by members of their congregation who confront the pastor and say, you know, what's that weak, woke crap you were talking about? It's like, well, that's Jesus's sermon on the Mount. Oh, well, that doesn't apply anymore. So, you know, this book is a little more topical than I sometimes get credit for. Um, but the prophet says that mercy is a foreign concept, and Ardora says that I must admit the concept is alluring, but it is something I'm only beginning to grasp. And they say, um, they say, what's going to happen to you? Superman says, what's going to happen to your people? And they say, well, without, without you in power, the power vacuums, going to continue to grow. And the prophet says, you know, the lieutenants of Darkseid are continue their civil war. They're going to decimate their planet. Superman says, I can't leave you, but um, no one here, not even those on Apocalypse, is above, is above hope. I accept your proposal to be the leader of Apocalypse. And so we cut to the scene where in their throne room and there's all these banners with the House of L hanging up and people are shouting, Hail Superman. But then Superman says, Like many of you, I was orphaned. Like all of you, I have been given a second chance. As your prophecy says, I was raised by humble farmers in the heartland of my world. They showed me the true light of love and hope. They are the ones who taught me the principles and beliefs that shape me into who I am today. Their forefathers were ordinary men and women who believed all to be created equal, and who escaped the grip of tyranny. They took it for themselves, the right of freedom, and built a nation upon truth and justice. It wasn't perfect, but it was alive and it grew. Um, then in liberty, they raised a torch. It was a beacon of hope for the entire world to see. I'm here to give you an ember born from that same flame, the same opportunity to take your rights and do the impossible. Make Apocalypse into a beacon of hope for the entire universe. And when he does this, he uses his heat vision to light a torch. John and Lois reach out torches of their own and light it. Um, Superman says, light pass from one to another to grow. And then Lois and John take their torches. They light torches held by the prophet in Ardora. They, in turn, light the torches of everyone in the audience. And Superman says, and to shine with freedom in the darkest corners of your world. Um, cast off the chains of dark side and declare independence from all who are like him. Seek out those among you who offer kindness in a new beginning. 
begin to heal your wounds and lift each other up. And you may find that even the coldest of hearts can melt and lead you to the new guards of your future security, indistinguishable with truth and justice for all. And there's a scene of people being having their their literal shackles unlocked, people being handed out um, like medical packages. There's a looks like a, a kid maybe who's had all his teeth busted out and part of his face is cybernetic and he's being handed a torch. We see um, the female Furies and Granny being locked in prison. Um, really, really good speech. Um, I, I, man, and I know this is going to ruin it, and I'm sorry, but when people compare the founding of the country to you know, other, to oppressed societies being liberated, you really have to take that with a grain of salt because, of course, the country was founded by slave owners. So it really wasn't liberty and justice for all or you know it was liberty and justice for white people especially if you're wealthy but i i like the words i like the sentiment you know like like i did when i was doing a captain america podcast you have to say well they were very flawed people but you know the the sentiment that they inspired led to things eventually getting better and things still aren't perfect and things you could you could argue things are very bad in some cases but you have you know things now are definitely better than they were 50 years ago 100 years ago 150 years ago so forth and so on so i will take it with the grain of salt that i can um superman kind of passes the governorship of apocalypse onto them they say we're just soldiers, and he says some of the finest leaders are. Um, she, Ardora, gives Superman a boom cube, not a full mother box, but basically a, a boom tube portal, and says, you know, if, if we need you, we'll call you. If he says you call, I'll always answer. They show where Lex is in kind of a medical stasis tube, and he's almost healed up, and, you know, he should wake up soon after they get home. Um, John asks if they can take one of the one of the Warhound pups with them, and of course the end. Don't you think Crypto would like another friend to come live with us? And they're like, no, don't even think about it. And as they leave, the prophet says a new vision rises with the sun, and Ardora asks what he sees. Of course, he's blind; he has like prophetic visions, and he says the same as before. But now I see that our hope for order and peace has as much chance on Apocalypse as it does on their world. And a small time has passed when we return to Earth and Lex is sitting in his office in his full Superman armor and his assistant is saying, hey, your appointment's here, cancel it. Should I? No, reschedule it to the mayor. I don't care. Um, he goes out onto his deck at which Superman flies up and, um, and Lex is like, so what are you doing here? It's, I didn't actually have to summon you here this time. And Lex says, the league calls and you answer. A cat goes up a tree and you are there. There's a key to the city ceremony and you don't miss a handshake. But I need you, your so-called partner, and you leave me maroon on another planet. Superman tries to interrupt and explain. But Lex says, I've bled for this city in your blasted ass. And how was my sacrifice repaid? With suspicion and disrespect. 
you who are so rich in mercy for everyone else still refuse to trust me. And um, Superman says it's dangerous to trust the hypocrite. What you did on Apocalypse proves it. But Lex is not hearing any of that. He reaches his gauntleted hands out, rips the S from his chest, and uses the energy generators in his gauntlets to melt the S. And as Superman flies off saying, be seeing you, Luthor, Lex looks up in the sky, watching Superman fly off with the S symbol burning at his feet and this gap in his armor, just smiling malevolently. Now, it has... I, I'd actually forgotten about this ending because I haven't read this arc in a couple of years. But it's generally considered the end of Justice League No Justice, which we will get to in a few weeks, where that's thought of as the beginning of Lex's return to you know traditional bad guy status. I'd say it's here because I don't think we see Lex again between now and then. Action Comics number 1000 is coming up fast, at which point Bendis is going to take over. Lex is not in the Bendis books until toward the very end, until right up to the, the build-up to Dark Knight's death metal. Um, but, you know, technically when he is, is gathered in Superman, no justice, I don't want to talk about it too much. Some of the bad guys that are gathered say that Lex is a good guy now. Um, I, we don't really see that. He's not wearing the Superman armor in that series. He's wearing his traditional, he's not wearing his traditional armor because it's, it's new, but it's, it's coded more like his traditional green and purple armor. And that is a really, really interesting touch that I had not thought about before. I was thinking that my coverage of this issue was going to be kind of short because a lot of it is fighty fight, but a lot of it, ha you know, there was a lot to talk about. This this segment went on quite a bit longer than I expected. So I thought it was going to be about a 15-minute segment. I'm up to 31 minutes and 20 seconds go. Um, so... That was that was a really fun story arc. I like Imperious Lex. Like I've said, I like it when Superman goes off world. I I like putting Superman in in over the top situations and seeing how he deals with it. I think that's a lot of fun. And of course, we get a lot of good family dynamic between Clark and Lois and John. Um, Lex is kind of the MacGuffin of this story arc. But it is a, a somewhat of a character-defining story arc. So highly recommended all around. If you haven't read it on the app, I highly recommend you do so. Or if you, know, you haven't read it in a collected edition, so forth and so on, I highly recommend you check it out. So I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to close my eyes and rest. Um, but before I hit the interstitial, I just want to remind you guys that if you enjoy what I'm doing here on the main podcast, and if you'd like to get some extra exclusive content, um, there is a ton of it over on my Patreon. And you can sign up to get that, and you can sign up to help the show out over at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. But stick around, and I'll be right back to talk about Dark Knight's Metal number five. Alrighty, let's jump into this thing. <laughs> just Dark Knight's Metal 
number five. And if you can't tell from my voice, my enjoyment of this book is decreasing slightly with each issue. Um, it's still fun. It's still interesting, but I think kind of the the bonkersness of it is starting to uh, reach the limits of what I can really dig right now. Maybe just because I'm tired. I don't know. But um, this book is cover dated January 31st, 2018. So yay, another book that has moved past 2017. And it is written by Scott Snyder with pencils by Greg Capullo, inks by Jonathan Glampian, um, covers by Capullo and Jim Lee and Andy Kubert and Tony Daniel. Let me see if I can find the rest of the credits in this monster. Hang on one second. Don't think they are. Uh, let's see. Nope. Okay. Let's see if the app says. Colors are not listed. Um, oh, well. Colors and letters are not listed. If I find them, I will let you know. But, um, again, we've got four covers on this one, as we have been. Um, the main one by Capullo is a close-up of the Batman Who Laughs, who always reminds me of the mouth of Sauron from the extended edition version of Return of the King. And I suspect, given a scene later in this book, that is intentional. He's a really creepy visual, and he's got a mouthful of teeth that are too big for his mouth, and his eyes are covered in spikes, and he wears leather armor. So, yeah. And he's holding up a tarot card that says Lamort with um, an illustration of the heads of all the Justice League members on pikes. Um, this is the first Jim Lee cover I really enjoyed. It is Wonder Woman holding up Hawkman's mace. And you can tell Wonder Woman's taking a few punches. She's got some blood coming out of her nose and on her lip. Um, and her teeth are pulled back in a snarl, and she's ready to whoop some butt. And it's really good. Um, of course, I love the one by Kubert. It is of the Batman who laughs on a cliff looking down at some something and his arms are thrown back dramatically like, ha ha, here I come to get you. And around him are like dark versions of definitely Dr. Fate, Batman, and Superman. But there's two more and I think one of them is supposed to be maybe steel and there's one that just looks like a goblin demon thing maybe that's supposed to be robin i don't know but we've got versions we've got dark universe versions of robin in this already so maybe he's just a generic demon um and the one by tony daniels is kind of my least favorite on this one it is black adam getting hit by his own lightning as wonder woman it looks like maybe she's need him in the face. Um, and she has a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. I don't know what it is about this one, but Wonder Woman looks really stiff. And the the torso part of her armor is... It's got like the silver trim on it. And it's got the layered plating. 
So the upper half of her of her uniform looks like the new 52 version, which is not my favorite, even though the new 52 Wonder Woman is, is a really, really good series. Um, and there's like this black diamond kind of floating in the background behind them. Um, there's a lot that's been going on in this series so far. If I try to explain it all at once, I'm going to sound like a crazy person. So I am just going to kind of touch on the highlights as we get to the things that call back to them. As we go through the book, well, the broadest strokes are that Batman has been manipulated into opening a doorway to the Dark Multiverse, um, releasing the Dark God Barbatos and his minions, the Dark Knights led by the Batman who laughs and who is a Batman who has the unrestrained insanity of the Joker and the other Dark Knights are Batman mixed with the powers of other Justice League members or their foes. And they have begun um, sinking Earth Zero into the Dark Multiverse because Earth Zero is kind of the linchpin of the positive matter multiverse. Um, the heroes have split off into different teams. Um, Aquaman and Deathstroke have gone to Atlantis. Um, Mr. Terrific, Hal Jordan, and Plastic Man, locked into a form of an egg, have gone to Thanagar Prime. Um, Wonder Woman and Kendra Saunders and Dr. Fate went to the Rock of Eternity, and they're all looking for more nth metal to use to fight the Dark Knights and fight Barbatos. And Superman and Batman were trapped in the Dark Multiverse, but have been transported to the World Forge, where worlds are created and either sent up to the positive matter, I don't even want to say the positive matter universe, but the main multiverse, or sunk down into the dark multiverse. And I said last week that Kupulo's skill at drawing a lot of human-sized figures um, on a page is not, he does not have the talent for that that George Perez did or Phil Jimenez does. Excuse me. Um, or when he draws characters very small for some reason to show perspective. However, when he draws very large things that are very dark and fantastical, they look really cool. And we open with Barbatos, the dark god, the dragon of the world forager, um, kind of clinging, perched to one of the anti-monitor's antenna towers. And he's got his spindly, kind of zombie-looking arms and legs wrapped around it. He's got his cowl pulled up over his face, which we never see in full. And he has his large bat-like wings spread out, and there's dark purple lightning emanating out from him and from the tower. And there's these, these limbless dragons flying around, and each dragon has the Joker's face. And it's all pretty rad. And um, they were using Superman not to power this antenna, but to power some kind of giant tower made up of human souls or something in the Dark Multiverse to sink Earth Zero down into the Dark Multiverse. Since Superman and Batman escaped, the Earth has stopped sinking. Um, so 
the Batman who laughs tells Barbatos to open his mouth and scream. And he says, um, let me zoom in because the type, the font is pretty small. Um, it says, your voice, it's the dark chord that will shake the strings of the multiverse. Anti-music to bring the hordes of the dark here. And I hadn't really noticed this before. Anthony pointed it out to me on Digging for Kryptonite when we talked about this miniseries. He pointed out that a lot of what Snyder's riffing off, riffing on here comes from Grant Morrison. And there is definitely some of it that I noticed in Dark Knights, uh, the Fords and Dark Knights, the casting, um, where it talks about the tribe of the bear and the tribe of the wolf and uh, Bruce Wayne being sent back to prehistoric times and all that. But I could definitely see it here um, because in Final Crisis, Superman saves the universe with music. He Music is the source of all life and all creation. And Superman uses this miracle machine and he whistles into it or something. And that defeats Darkseid. Um, and here, uh, Barbatus' scream is the anti-music that disrupts life, that disrupts creation. And so we see Barbatos open his mouth super wide, and we don't really see a sound, but we see him with his mouth open wide and this wisp of, like, fire and smoke coming out of it. From there, we go to the World Forge, where Carter Hall, Hawkman, has been transformed into the new dragon of the World Forger. Um, and he looks like a giant anthropomorphic hawk demon with a huge blacksmith's hammer. And, um, and what really bugs me about this, as Carter Hall is trying to swat Batman and Superman with his hammer... Um, is that Superman has given up hope and Batman is trying to keep Superman's spirits up. And there is an argument to be made, and they definitely do in the Batman books, that Batman is a symbol of hope of sorts. He is Batman and the bat signal are the light that pierce the darkness and corruption of Gotham City. And when bad things happen, the people of Gotham City know that there is someone out there who is taking the steps to keep them safe and to stop the bad guys. Um, and that's fine. I don't disagree with that. But Superman's whole gig is hope. And to say that Superman would give up hope in this case and Batman would keep his spirits up when in the last issue we saw, we had to see Superman pretty much dragging Bruce up by his bootstraps to get Bruce to not give up, to get Bruce to not give up hope, it feels like a stretch. And of course, Snyder wrote Batman for years before this. Um, I didn't realize it, but he started writing Batman shortly before Flashpoint, and he kept writing him all throughout the New 52, and he had a Batman book in Rebirth. So, of course, Snyder would kind of lean that way. Um, but, you know, Batman's saying, you know, don't worry, 
you know, Daniel, the Sandman, uh, the son, the grandson of Carter Hall, the current Sandman since Morpheus died way back when, said that if we can get to the World Forge before its light goes out, then all will be well. And they're saying, you know, we have to get there, we have to get there. <clears throat> we cut from them to Aquaman and Deathstroke, Team Orange. And again, they have gone to Atlantis to look for... Um, for signs of nth metal and they've gone to like these hither to secret parts of Atlantis that are part of like Arion's kingdom from back in the day. And they found a hidden chamber or like a hidden tunnel that goes into this like secret compartment at the center of the earth. And there's all this machinery there that looks part Atlantean and um, it's protecting them from the heat and it looks like mining equipment. So basically, it's equipment there to mine nth metal. And, of course, before all this started, nth metal was said to have originated on Thanagar. Here, Dark Knight's metal proposes that it actually originated on Earth and somehow made its way to Thanagar. But Aquaman says he can recognize enough of the technology to get the mining equipment going. And we go from there to Thanagar Prime. And Thanagar Prime is currently... Thanagar Prime itself is like this hidden core of the Thanagarian Empire. Empire. It's not like the planet Thanagar. It's like a special super planet that's kept out of phase with the rest of the universe or something. And it's currently being ruled by Aminar Sin, who is a villain that was introduced by Jeff Johns in JSA during the return of Hawkman's story arc. And... Aminar Sin has enlisted the aid of Starro. And um, with Starro's help, Hal Jordan and Mr. Fantastic have been captured. Starro is telepathically keeping Hal's mind just scrambled enough that he can't form a coherent thought to form a ring construct. So he can't get them out of the prison. They've confiscated Mr. Terrific's T-spheres and they've confiscated Plastic Man, again, locked in an egg form, to power this cannon that in the last issue was stated to be pointing at Earth for the purpose of blowing it up if the Dark if the dark Knights make their way out of the Dark Multiverse through Earth. So in other words, we're going to protect the rest of the, pos rest of the, um, the positive multiverse by destroying Earth. Um, and, uh, but we'll get back to the canon in just a bit. And so Hal Jordan is asking what Plastic Man's deal is. You know, why is he, what makes him so special? And, you know, I'm, I'm sure readers at this point were wondering, why is Plastic Man needed to help find more nth metal? And Mr. Terrific says that Elo Brian wasn't special. He was just a thief. One night he fell into a vat of chemicals. My best guess was some attempt by the owls, in other words, the court of owls, or star labs to approximate cosmic metals. So we fell into a vat of, of synthetic cosmic metal. Okay. Now his molecular structure changes with his desires. His body is a superconductor for cosmic energies, which is why they're after him. And again, Aminar Sin wants to use the plastic man egg to power this cannon that he's got. Um, but while they're talking... Uh, what appears to be a Thanagarian wingman comes up 
and but then he transforms into the Martian Manhunter. Now this is the first time that we've seen Martian Manhunter really interacting with the Justice League um, since before Flashpoint, I believe. When after Flashpoint, when the New Fifty Two launched, Martian Manhunter was shown in a flashback to at one point have been part of the Justice League. Um, but then he has since left it and was working with Stormwatch, which was made up of him and a bunch of Wildstorm characters. And I think he had like a solo miniseries at some point in the the time period leading up to Rebirth. I'm not 100% on that. But this is the first time we're really seeing him work with the Justice League. And so he gets Hal Jordan and um, Mr. Terrific out of the cell, and he says he's going to block Starro's telepathy with his telepathy from affecting Hal's ring. From there, we go to the Rock of Eternity, where Black Adam has shown up and has apparently fried um, Mr. F Dr. Fate. And as I was talking about in the last episode, I believe the Dr. Fate they're using in this is Kent Nelson, who was mentoring, um, I'm sorry, I forget the kid's name, who is the current Dr. Fate, um, Khalid Nasur. Um, he apparently dies, but I take that with a grain of salt because this series is playing a lot with other people's toys. It is... Um, I don't want to say ignoring continuity, but it seems to be making up it's not new continuity for characters who are appearing in other books. Um, but um, after Dr. Fate got fried, uh, Kendra was overwhelmed by the dark energies and she was transformed into Lady Blackhawk, who looks a lot like Shadowhawk from early image. And she's not really doing anything. She's just kind of hovering there saying, the dark is destined to win. So she's not really impeding Wonder Woman, but she's not helping Wonder Woman either as Wonder Woman is fighting off Black Adam. And they are relatively well-matched. Like Wonder Woman, I don't think she's supposed to be as strong as um, Black Adam, but she can also fly. She is more resist She's resistant to magic, which is what empowers Black Adam, of course. And Black Adam has made a deal with Barbatos that when the Dark Multiverse conquers the the rest of the multiverse, that Black Adam's going to get his own planet. He's going to get planet Kondok. So that he can rule and keep safe and so forth and so on. Um, and as they're... Well, let me come back to that. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I'm going to put a pin in what I'm about to say because they haven't quite touched on it yet. But again... Um, Kendra, she's just kind of hovering in front of this black diamond, which I guess is supposed to be a portal to the dark multiverse. And she's just saying, all roads lead to darkness. And as they're fighting, Black Adam blasts Wonder Woman through a wall with his lightning. Now we go back to the World Forge, and the World Forge is surrounded by fire and lots of narrow cliffs. And... Uh, Carter Hall, Dragon of the Forge, smashes the cliff that Superman and Batman just barely jump off of at the last second, while Carter Hall shouts, you shall not pass. 
So again, like I said, um, I I kind of feel like the the Batman Who Laughed design is very much inspired by the Mouth of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings Special Edition, and because of course we're getting here a a portmanteau, a, a visual portmanteau of both the Balrog and Gandalf from the Mines of Moria in uh, Fellowship of the Ring, which is my favorite of the three Lord of the Rings movies. We watch the Lord of the Rings movie every ho- every Thanksgiving week. A lot of people have their Christmas movie traditions. That's my Thanksgiving movie tradition because that's around the time they came out in the theaters, more or less. And I love those movies. Um, so again, you know, Superman is saying they have no hope. They're like on a piece of rock that's floating down a river of lava. There's little critters coming out of holes in the rocks that look very nasty. And, you know, Batman is saying, you know, the League's going to keep fighting. Diana's going to keep fighting. We have to keep fighting. And Superman's saying, you know, there's nowhere to go. There's no way to win. We ha- We can't fight. We have to retreat. And uh, Carter Hall, he leans his giant monster face down and says, you will be returned to the forge, to darkness. Prepare yourself. There is no retreat. And Batman shouts at him and says, no, there isn't. And then he begins quoting Carter Hall's journal and says, to retreat is to walk alone. To explore is to walk with generations, dead and alive, in an act of love. And he says, I came here decades ago seeking the man who wrote those words in his journal, the great hero Hawkman. When did Bruce journey to the World Forge decades ago? That has not been shown. Um, So uh, I don't know exactly where they're going with that. But Carter says, there is no Hawkman here. Batman says, damn right. That hero, Carter Hall, he's long dead. Um, And Carter goes, yes, Carter Hall is. And then he pauses and... Batman sees a blue light forming in the pool of lava and says, Bruce, there's a, the forge, there's a spark. And Batman smiles to himself and says, that's right, you big turkey. And he coughs himself into unconsciousness. Um, Batman, actually, no, he, he continues narrating as the scene changes. He says, Carter Hall, he might have been the greatest detective in human history. Is he, though, <laughs> in DC continuity, is Carter Hall a detective? I mean, he's an archaeologist in one life, but again, you know, it's it really feels like it's treading on continuity, and I mean that's what comics do. It's comic books are one long round robin story. You know, I start it and I pass it off to someone else, and they do something with it, and they pass it off and do something else. But the way this book does it doesn't really work for me. Um, for example, and I'm going to ignore the rest of what Batman's saying, because we go back to Wonder Woman where she's been knocked through a wall into this chamber, and on the opposite wall of the chamber is a crack in the wall, and through the crack she can see Hawkman's mace, which is what she and Kendra came there to get. And as she reaches through the crack to get to the mace, um, Black Adam grabs her, and he's talking about... Um, how the the oh no wait no they still they still hasn't gotten the thing I want to talk about I'm sorry black it's not black Adam that says the thing I want to talk about we'll come back to it but basically he's saying you know there the mace isn't going to help you there's no chance and um 
you know, you have no chance of here. The, the, the mace changes nothing. And, and as he's grabbing Wonder Woman's bracer, which apparently is made out of eighth metal, um, which is supposed to be the metal of the gods. So again, it's taking other people's toys. Like Greg Rucka has been writing Wonder Woman at this point for at least a year. Um, he wrote her back in the day. You know, Azarello was writing her back in the 52, so forth and so on. No one has ever brought up that Wonder Woman's bracelets are made out of eighth metal. But it was mentioned in the last issue. But he's grabbing her by one of the bracelets and he's generating a lot of electricity. And he's saying, you mean Carter Hall's mace made of nth metal, which is hyperconductive, meaning it absorbs and stores energy like the kind you're generating? I think what you're trying to say, Black Adam, is oh shazam as she smacks him upside the head with the mace and knocks him out. And she looks at the mace and smiles and says, huh, I could get used to you. And to be and to be fair, that is a sweet mace. That is a perfectly designed mace. Um, like I've said before, I like ancient melee weapons. Um, I prefer longer weapons like spears and glaives. But if you got to be up close, a mace is a pretty rad weapon. But then Wonder Woman gets like shot in the head somewhere. It shows her getting, we, we see a blam we see her tiara flying off. We see a blood splatter. We see her lying on the ground looking stunned. So I'm guessing she got, you know, like Wonder Woman is powerful enough that the bullet didn't penetrate her skull, but it gave her a concussion, right? It it pierced the skin. It didn't pierce the skull beneath. It knocked her kind of senseless. Um, and it's the Batman who laughs, who shot her. He's got a submachine gun. And he's, now he's holding Carter Hall's mace over his shoulder. And um, he said, the bullets are made of eighth metal, same as your invisible jet. And that's what I wanted to talk about. And it goes back to the thing about the bracelets. Since when has Wonder Woman's invisible jet been made out of eighth metal? And I mean, I, could, I guess you could say it was made from the metal of the gods. That's probably always been the case. Um, I'm not as up on my Wonder Woman lore as I have been, but I have starting reading started reading Perez as Wonder Woman from issue one, and I plan on going at least all the way through uh, Infinite Crisis, and I've read a little bit of the Jimenez run in 2000, I've read a little bit of the run of the series that begins immediately after Infinite Crisis. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I get that they're inventing 8th Metal and all the other sub-metals in this series, but again, it's it's taking other people's toys as those people are playing with them and tinkering with their continuity as those toys are in play, which just doesn't work for me. If I mean, if Wonder Woman was between books at this point, if for some reason her series had gotten canceled or someone else, you know, it doesn't bother me when someone takes over a title and changes things up. And I say that now, I know we're going to get to the Bendis run in a little bit. And there's things I don't really don't like about it, but I firmly believe that a new writer has the right to do with that character what they will. It is their toy to currently play with. Someone else is going to change it back to the status quo if the audience doesn't like it. But to change, make changes in that character's continuity while someone is actively writing their solo book just does not work for me at all. Um, and the Batman Who Laughs goes on to talk about how in other realities, he's killed every other woman he's come across, and you know. But her thing is, she always fights till the last. Um, and he says, "Well, you know, and I'm gonna, 
you know, so since you're probably going to be the last one alive, I want you to stop and listen. You hear that. People think that birth is loud and death is silent. Things start with a bang and with a whimper, but I'll tell you a secret. See, endings, endings are the loudest of all. We go back to the Earth's core beneath Atlantis, where Aquaman and Deathstroke have gotten the, the mining and forging equipment worked enough, enough to gather a small amount of, of um, molten uh, nth metal that they're pouring into a casting, uh, at which point Deathstroke gets shot in the back with a harpoon. Hooray! Uh, but then Aquaman gets shot in the stomach with a harpoon. Uh-oh. And it's Black Adam. And Black Adam has made a deal with Barbatos as well to have an entire oceanic world in the Dark Multiverse where he can enslave the Atlanteans. And he has brought three of the Dark Knights, um, Murder Machine, which is the cyborg analog, Red Death, the Flash analog, and the Drowned, which is Aquaman's own analog, who has the coolest design, by the way. She is very much cyborg, pirate, aqua woman. She looks great. But we go back from there to Thanagar Prime, um, where Martian Manhunter and Mr. Terrific and Hal Jordan are fighting their way through the wingmen to get to uh, Aminar Sin, who was huddled over the Plastic Man egg. And they make a lot of butt jokes because um, um, Hal Jordan had said previously that he was going to kick Star Wars' butt and that Mr. Terrific said he didn't think Starfish had a butt to kick. And here we get an, uh, an editor's note that Star Starro has five butts. Okay. Um, but they get to Aminarsin, who's got the egg. And remember I said that this giant cannon, the Phoenix cannon that Aminarsin had, it was designed to destroy Earth if the Dark Multiverse started breaching into the main universe. But he says the Phoenix cannon is designed to brighten nth metal at the core of the Earth should the planet ever begin to sink into the dark. Um, and uh, Mr. Terrific says if we can activate it, we might be able to raise the planet. So it's complete turnaround from what was said last issue. I mean, if, if they'd said it was designed to destroy the planet, but we can rewire it to brighten the nth metal, that's one thing. But it says it's designed to brighten the nth metal and lift the Earth up out of the Dark Multiverse. But um, they realize that the polarity has been changed, at which point they turn around and see three more Dark Knights, the Devastator, who we talked about last episode, the, um, the Dawnbreaker, who has a really cool name, who is a Batman with stolen Green Lantern power, and I forget what his name is, but he's the Wonder Woman analog, who's the, the Batman who is stolen the power of Ares. And they have magically teleported to Thanagar Prime to activate the cannon with its reversed polarity to sink it back, sink the Earth completely down into the Dark Multiverse. And that is what we see. And again, my patience is wearing thin. Um, there's a lot of Rube Goldberg uh, shenanigans in this series, there's more in in No Justice, and there's more in the Snyder Tinyan Justice League run, but I'm more forgiving of it there. Um, because at least in Justice League, you have room to breathe. It, 
Justice League is an event that's spaced out over two years. Here, it's all crammed into sex, and it's very frenetic, and it all goes very, very fast. And there's a lot of, okay, we need this metal and this metal and this metal. We need Batman in this one place at this one time to coat him with all the metals to open the portals to the dark multiverse, and so forth and so on. And here, this says, uh, and this is the Batman who laughs narrating, talking to Wonder Woman, says, you, see, you and your friends just delivered your universe's last remaining pieces of nth metal right into our hands. They were far too dangerous for us to risk approaching ourselves. Now the egg, a plastic man, will power the reversed cannon and its beam will darken the core of the earth. Then through this, the, the very mace you recovered, the earth will be guided down through the portal and into the dark once and for all. And there's actually a really cool shot of this beam shooting all the way across space to earth and, you know, infecting it with dark multiverse power. But, Again, it's like, well, we've got the cannon, and it's going to shoot the beam, and it's going to go through the, and it's powered by the egg, and then the beam goes through the mace, and like, okay, man, this is this is more convoluted than than I have the energy for. Um, but um, the scene is cutting back and forth next between the Batman who laughs, kind of gloating over Wonder Woman, saying, "I'm glad you'll be the last." the end because I want you to see your universe die screaming. He teleports away. Um, Kendra attacks Wonder Woman, but Wonder Woman last wraps the lasso around her hand uh, brass knuckle style and punches her with it. And the power of truth, which is the greatest weapon we have, um, snaps Kendra out of her kind of dark energies trance. Meanwhile, we see uh, Batman and Superman uh, moving closer and closer to the actual World Forge. Um, Wonder Woman is telling Kendra, you know, we can't lose hope. We're going to win. We're the good guys. They jump through the Black Diamond into, um, I guess, into the Dark Multiverse. It's not super clear. Um, I think... It's supposed to just be Earth. I think it's supposed to be just a portal back to Earth. And when they get there, they see that the the world is covered with dark multiverse doppelgangers. Uh, they're drawn very, very small. Um, but we definitely have like a a giant like kaiju version of Dark Side. We have a two face with two heads. We have a monstrous looking Riddler with a with like a question mark growing out of his head. There's a version of Wonder Woman that has, it's either a demonic head or, or she's wearing like a helmet that looks like a demon skull. We have this giant monstrous version of Bane. We have a cybernetic gorilla grod. Like, I don't know what he's doing with Flash. It looks like Flash is just trying to, trying to crawl away from him. And for some reason, a giant alligator. And there's a version of Wonder Woman who um is wearing purple instead of the traditional wonder woman colors and she has no face but she has magic energy crackling out of her eyes and shouting all roads all low excuse me all roads lead to darkness we have a a cheetah version of the one of wonder woman saying to barbatos so um despite the fact that you know wonder woman was saying don't worry we'll get there in time um and 
Batman and Superman going, don't worry, we'll get to the World Forge in time. We see um, Batman and Superman kind of sinking down into this lava with, you know, Superman is still giving up hope. Um, but he says, you know, wherever this goes, we'll go together. Batman is saying, Diana, the others will win. And uh, the last page is Wonder Woman and Kendra about to get swarmed by these dark multiverse doppelgangers, which remind me a lot on this page of the evil doppelgangers from Marvel's Infinity War. Um, and as Wonder Woman and Kendra prepare to charge into the melee, uh, Wonder Woman says, I want you to do something for me, yell. As we do this, yell so loud, Barbatos and that laughing Batman's ears burst. So loud they understand it's not a scream. Never a scream. It's a war cry. And the last panel, last two panels are of them kind of jumping at all the doppelgangers, like in silhouette with lightning behind them, Dark Knight's Return style. And the panel behind that is a bunch of books burning, which is a callback to the previous issue, which are the books of the dreams of all of humankind in the dreaming. Um, so <laughs> that is issue five and I have to admit, um, the fun that I was feeling from this series is starting to dwindle. It's just a little too much, which is kind of like metal itself for me. I enjoy metal, but I can only listen to it so many days at a time. I can listen to metal every day for like a week. And then I need to switch it up and listen to like orchestral movie scores or Evanescence or like 90s alternative or something for a little bit because it's like drinking too much coffee. I love coffee. I refuse to go a day without it. I drink a minimum four cups a day. But sometimes you get to the point where you just feel dehydrated and, and uncomfortably hyper and maybe you have to poop. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about this series right now. I'm dehydrated, I'm a little hyper, and maybe it's making me need to poop. So that is it for Dark Knight's Metal number five. We will wrap this series up next week and move on, but I do still have time for a little something extra for you guys. So after the interstitial, don't go anywhere. And for our bonus segment, I am going to give you guys an overview of Doomsday Clock number one, cover dated November 22nd, 2017. Now I say overview, and I mean it, because even though Doomsday Clock is probably the most important event as far as Superman continuity goes in the past several years, Superman does not really appear in this miniseries until, I believe, issue 7. So I'm not going to start talking about it in detail until we get to that point. But I feel like too much happens between issues 1 and issue 6 for us to just jump in with issue 7 and do like a recap of the first six issues. 
So this story is written by Jeff Johns with uh, art by Gary Frank and colors by Brad Anderson and letters by Rob Lee. Gary Frank and Brad Anderson both did the main cover and the variant cover. And the main cover is a bunch of very angry looking people looking up, looking like they're the way they're they're colored. It looks like they're lit by a fire. It's just off camera. They're holding up protest signs. One says the end is here. And one is holding up a sign that has the face of Ozymandias with like the Ghostbusters circle with a line over his face. Um, the variant is awesome. It is of Superman in his reborn costume, kind of hovering in front of the giant face of Dr. Manhattan as Superman is being dissolved away. Like most of his right leg is gone and his right arm is beginning to dissolve. And the bits that are dissolving away from him are clock gears and springs and so forth. It's a really cool cover. Now, interestingly enough, this series is spaced so far apart that even though he appears on the variant cover of issue one in his reborn costume, Action Comics 1000 will have happened by the time Superman actually appears in the series. And by that point, he'll be wearing his traditional costume. So the issue, um, let's see, does the entire thing take place on the Watchmen universe? world it looks like it so first of all i'm not going to pretend to be an expert on watchmen i do not like watchmen i am not a fan of alan moore especially his work in the 80s a lot of terrible stuff happens to women in his books which is a choice he made um in Watchmen, Silver Spectre gets raped. In uh, Killing Joke, Barbara Gordon is shot, crippled, and it's implied at least sexually molested, if not raped. In, um, in his run on Swamp Thing, uh, Abby, uh, Abigail is raped. Um, she has sex with her husband. Um, who is, in fact, being possessed by her uncle, Anton Arcane. So she's, you know, not having sex with the person that she consented to have sex with. So forth and so on. In League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in the 90s, um, um, Mina Harker gets brutally abused in a way that has a sexual connotation to it. It's just a running theme in Moore's work, and I'm just not a fan. He has a really good writing style, and about Alan Moore, I often says I hate what he says, but I like the way he says it sometimes. Or I like how he speaks, and I, I hate what he says. Um, so I do not claim to be an expert. I know the I know the overview, and I know that at the finale of Watchmen, Ozymandias used like a psychic bomb to kill a bunch of people, but also implanted in the minds of the survivors of an attack by a giant alien and that unified the people. Here, time has passed and the, the people have figured out what Osmandius did and they are writing, they are out to get him. Um, we're getting a scene of uh, where, where people have overrun the White House 
and taken the vice president and the attorney general uh, hostage. And the newscaster saying, we're still waiting on the word from the president who was currently golfing. And of course, this came out in 2017. And we know who the president was at that time. And we know what his favorite pastime was. Um, but Ozymandias is being sought out. And uh, we get a shot of where a, not a SWAT team, but like a military commando team breaks into Ozymandias's sanctuary. And we see an x-ray of Ozymandias' skull where it's implied that he has cancer. Um, all the news broadcasts go out and it's replaced by a broadcast from the National News Network. And in the background, the three N's for National News Network are drawn like Nazi SS symbols. And I have complained that DC did not do enough to criticize the um, the Trump administration while it was going on. Um, and I said that until I read this series the first time. And again, I am largely skimming through these first six issues. But um, I do give it credit where it's due. Um, and, and I'm looking up something real quick. Because... Um, um, the newscast is being carried out by William F. Buckley Jr., who is now an adult in the present day. And William F. Buckley, um, um, well, maybe it doesn't take place in the in the present, uh, because William F. Buckley Jr. was a uh, conservative writer, pol uh, public intellectual, and political commentator. In 1955, he founded National Review, the magazine that stimulated the conservative movement in the 20th century United States. So he's kind of the founder of the modern conservative movement. Now here, he's portrayed as a much, he's more like a, like a football jock Aryan kind of guy. Um, so I'm surprised they didn't say he's like William F. Buckley III. Um, and he's saying that uh, Russia has invaded Poland and they have forced uh, the United States' hand and they're going to launch a nuclear strike. So this is a world that is on the brink of nuclear war. And it cuts to a prison where Rorschach, surprisingly, because he died at the end of Watchmen, is breaking a woman who goes by the name of Marionette out of prison. And um, he, Rorschach tells her he's not the same person that she knows. Uh, she says, prove it. He takes off his hand. He takes off his glove, shows her his hand, and he has the hand of an African-American man. So again, we do have a different Rorschach. And she, he wants her help finding Ozymandias. And she says, why should I help you? And he pulls out a picture of a toddler who is Marionette's son. And he, if he says, if you help me, I'll help you. Uh, I'll help you get your son back. And of course, he's speaking in that weird, stunted syntax that, um, that Rorschach uses. Um, during this whole thing, there's a prison riot going on. We see a cop about to be raped by some inmates, which tells me that Johns is leaning way, way into the grimdark of, uh, of Watchmen. And there's a guy there who, uh, who doesn't talk, 
and the other guards are going to go beat him up because he never makes a sound. And um, as the other inmates are beating him up, Marionette shouts, come on, babe, we're leaving. At which point the mute man, who is the mime, um, begins fighting back. And he completely annihilates the other inmates. And he does so in a way that the gestures as he, that he makes, which appears to be him miming the use of weapons, actually has the effect of the weapons that he uses, which is fascinating. Because in the Watchmen universe, Nobody has powers except Dr. Manhattan. That's kind of the whole thing. But um, Mime, he's got these invisible weapons. And I don't know if they are actual physical weapons that are somehow invisible or if they are like psychic projections. But one way or another, he's an incredibly lethal fighter. And one thing that is pretty neat about Marionette and the Mime is that like all the other characters in Watchmen, they are based on Charlton Comics characters. Of course, Dr. Manhattan is Captain Atom, uh, Night Owl is Blue Beetle, um, Ozymandias is Thunderbolt, um, the comedian is Peacemaker, and Rorschach is the question. And the mime and the marionette, they are analogs of Punch and Julie, which were Charlton um, uh, foes of Captain Adam. So that is, that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, like there's a scene of, of the mime going to this locker to retrieve his weapons. And, you know, there's like, he mimes putting on a belt and cocking a gun, like loading a gun. And, you know, it's implied that he's just crazy. But again, when he uses these weapons, they have the actual physical effect but um and this rorschach lives just like the other ones he lives out of his car his car is filthy he stinks um he has um you know patterned himself completely after the original rorschach he takes them to the secret hideout of of night owl um where um where they find um Ozymandias. And so it's not so much uh, Rorschach needs their help to find Ozymandias. He just wants their help once they do find Ozymandias. And uh, Ozymandias has that weird, like, genetically modified cat that he's got. Um, but Rorschach wants to, basically, they're going to escape this world. This world is about to go up in nuclear fire. And... Um, um, Ozymandias has a way out of it. Now, I say that Superman doesn't technically, doesn't really appear in this book. He, I should, I take that back. There is an epilogue where, um, where Clark actually does appear. And so as Ozymandias is saying that he has a way to leave this world before it dies, because they are going to go find Dr. Manhattan who left the Watchmen Earth at its finale. Um, we get we we go from there to Earth Zero, where Clark is sleeping in bed with Lois, and he's having a flashback to um, to a scene from the New Fifty Two. And again, as we've talked about 
since Superman Reborn, the the continuity of the pre-Flashpoint Superman that we've been following since the beginning of the podcast, since Convergence, has merged with that of the new 52 Superman. Which means that our Superman has, has taken, his history has taken on aspects of that of the new 52 version. And it was established in New 52 Superman that Ma and Pa died in a car crash while Clark was at a homecoming dance with Lana. And um, Clark wakes up from this like very, very vivid nightmare. He's like, I was never there, but somehow I saw it. Um, you know, she says, you were shouting in your sleep. You were shaking the whole room. He's floating above the bed. And, um, and Lois says, I can't remember the last time you had a nightmare. And Clark says, Lois, I don't think I've ever had one. And, um, we get all this interstitial stuff at the, at the end of it, which is, um, like newspaper clippings about the original, um, about the original Rorschach. And um, it's this thing of like pliers that it's implied that that Rorschach is used on people. And there's a newspaper article about the great lie that um, that Ozymandias used to trick the world into having world peace. Um, That is all we are going to be talking about Doomsday Clock for a bit um it's definitely not going to be in every episode kind of thing this series is pretty well spaced out um it starts in november it continues in december and then january but then jumps to march and then june of 18 um after july it jumps to september and then december and then february of 19 may of 19 september of 19 and it wraps up in december of 2019. So this 12 issue series takes two years, a little over two years to complete. And I get, you know, it's, this is a big, big project. Gary Frank puts in a ton of, of detail into every panel that he does. So I would rather them, you know, especially the impact that this story has on Superman by the end of it. I'm glad they took their time with it, but we're doing for the first six issues, we're, we're doing what I'm calling the Doomsday Watch. We are just going to keep an eye on Doomsday Clock as it comes up in our reading rotation. We'll get to it as it comes up and until Superman makes a full appearance as Superman, Clark makes an appearance as Superman in it, we will just do a brief overview of the issues. And that was our little bit of bonus content. And that is it for the comic books for this episode. But we're not done yet, so stay with me after the interstitial, and I'll be right back to wrap everything up. And that does it for episode 79 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. If you are enjoying this episode, I would love it if you told your friends about the show. I would love it if you gave me a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, Audible. I use this dinky little site called Podcast Addict. Um, wherever you get your podcast, I would love it if you gave me a, a five-star review. And I would also love it if you followed me on social media 
and you can do so on both Blue Sky and the platform formerly known as Twitter by searching for Truth, Justice, and Hope. And on both platforms, I am on there at About Superman. If you like the show, and if you would like to get a ton of bonus content and just do a really nice thing to help the show out, you can do so by subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. Over there, I have a bunch of content covering my favorite classic post-Crisis Superman stories from 1987 to 1993, beginning with the Pocket Universe Superman, uh, Pocket Universe Superboy saga, and ending for now with The Reign of the Supermen. I am currently covering the 2006 movie Superman Returns, and I just put out the third installment of that coverage with more to come. And again, uh, not only is it a lovely way for you to help me out, but you get a bunch of bonus content for it in return. Next episode, we will... um, We're done with the... um, the Imperious Lex story arc, but we are going to jump into another short arc over in the eponymous Superman title called Super Sons of Tomorrow. And we will finish up Dark Knight's Metal with issue six of that series. And if all goes well, I will have another little bit of bonus content for you at the end of the show. And that will all be coming your way next week. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love you.